The La Crosse Public Library Archives presents Dark La Crosse Stories, a series in collaboration with the La Crosse Tribune, featuring the seedier side of La Crosse, Wisconsin's history. These true stories are reflections of their time and place in history. The intent is not to diminish the human suffering that may have resulted from these events, but to bring light to ways in which people in the past experienced life. The city of La Crosse and the locations where these stories took place occupy part of a vast network of the ancestral lands of the Ho-Chunk, and we thank our Ho-Chunk community members and their ancestors for their stewardship of this area's land and history. On a cold day in December of 1907, in the Olmsted County Courthouse in Rochester, Minnesota, a beautiful young and popular socialite named Amy Sickle Lloyd faced six counts of forgery and three counts of obtaining money under false pretenses. Her plea? Not guilty. Of course I'm not guilty. I wrote checks on my husband's account and my sister's account thinking there would be money on deposit at those banks to back them up. And honestly, the law should be charging my husband for these crimes since it was his name on many of the checks. You ask what I was doing with the checks? Well, I enjoy shopping. Doesn't every woman? Previous to her connection with Francis Albert Lloyd, who went by Albert, Amy Sickle grew up in Rochester and Winona areas, the daughter of a prominent dry goods merchant. She was well-known in the lacrosse community for hosting social functions and attended high school football games, particularly ones between Winona and lacrosse. After parties at her place were very popular. However, once she met up with Albert Lloyd in 1904, her family ceased relations with her. In 1905, it was discovered that she had bilked three stores out of $50 each in Winona. Two years later, she was tried for stealing money from shops and banks by forging checks in Rochester totaling over $600, the equivalent of over $19,000 today. What can I say? I enjoy socializing and traveling after spending all those years studying in the Ladies Seminary and the St. Mary Seminary. Is that such a crime? Amy was sly. Her modus operandi involved buying a few minor goods at a retail shop, usually clothing such as a coat, and presenting a bad check in payment. Usually the check was $25 or $50 more than the bill of goods. Therefore, she would be given change back in cash. Later, Amy would return the purchase and receive the money back in cash. Well, what do you do with the coat that doesn't fit you? Also, the checks were written to the store by my husband, not by me. I had no idea it would bounce. He should be the one getting questioned, not me. Of course, I did write some checks from my dear sister's account as well. She lives in Chicago. Who knew she also didn't have money to back up those purchases? Sadly, we don't speak to each other anymore. But Amy's troubles didn't stop at the Minnesota border. Officials in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. heard that Amy was being held captive in jail and also wanted to bring her to justice in those cities for similar crimes. In East Coast newspapers, she was known as the woman in brown. Merchants were warned to be on the lookout for fraudulent activities. Brown isn't even my color. It makes my hair look washed out. And not only that, but it's not even a fashionable color this season. (laughs) I certainly hope that my husband will come soon to bail me out and set the record straight about who is at fault here and clear my name. After the December not guilty plea, the trial was delayed as Amy's lawyer claimed he could not provide witnesses for the defense in winter as they would have to travel considerable distances from out east. She remained in the Rochester jail until the time of the trial set for March. In an unexpected move, on February 20, 1908, 
Amy suddenly pled guilty to one of the nine indictments against her, the one which held the lightest penalty, having obtained $50 under false pretenses from the E.A. Knowlton Company of Rochester, a dry goods store. Judge Arthur Snow gave Amy an indeterminate sentence under the care of St. Cloud Reformatory Superintendent Frank Randall, who reportedly knew her when she was a girl in Winona. Amy would stay there for however many years were needed to reform her behaviors as a criminal. Since its opening, female prisoners were sent to the St. Cloud Reformatory, but the facility had no provision for housing them. The practice was for the superintendent to take the women into his home or send them to a local jail. As a result, Amy made her home with the family of F.H. Whitney, the principal keeper at the reformatory. Her incarceration was almost more like house arrest than jail time. I don't know why they sent me to St. Cloud. There is nothing here for me. Why, I shouldn't even be a prisoner. But knowing there would be a crowd watching me board the train, I chose to wear a blue suit and a hat with an automobile veil. It's very attractive on me, unlike Brown. On March 26th, it was reported that Amy's husband, Albert, was placed under arrest at Birmingham, Alabama, under charges that Amy telegraphed him at least part of the money she received, quote, by the questionable financial methods she practiced at Rochester. Albert fought extradition for two months, claiming he was not in the state of Minnesota at the time the crimes were committed, and therefore was not a fugitive from justice. He was perfecting his case to go before the Supreme Court of Alabama over the matter when he decided to no longer fight extradition taking his chances in the Minnesota courts. Saying that he didn't trust Rochester lawyers, Albert hired a lawyer from Red Wing to represent him, but the proceedings remained under Judge Snow in Olmstead County, despite Albert's pleas to have the trial moved elsewhere. Albert's trial finally took place in December, after he was incarcerated over seven months. In shocking testimony, Amy denied ever being married to him. She confessed to the court how the pair swindled merchants out of hundreds of dollars, although Albert coached her to cash a few checks of a high amount and then quickly get out of town. Mrs. Lloyd, Mrs. Lloyd, I am a reporter for the Winona Republican Herald. Do you have a moment to answer a few questions? Oh, certainly. Your husband, I mean alleged husband, Mr. F. Albert Lloyd, is being convicted of being an accomplice to your crimes by receiving money secured in a fraudulent manner. What are your comments on that? I want to first remind everyone that I pled guilty to one count of fraud and state that all the other counts of fraud I was charged with were mainly for checks that were in Albert's name and signed by him. So, you're saying that he is to blame for these crimes? As I said during my confession, Albert put me up to swindle merchants. The plan was that while I went to the West to do this, he would remain in the East and receive the proceeds of various operations. I'm sure he will claim that it was solely my doing, but you know how men are, always placing the blame on women. You two had plans to use the money for a trip, is this correct? Yes, it is. Albert and I wanted to go to Europe and stay there until the news about our money forgery blew over. Of course, I feel awful now recalling these plans. I was so swept up in Albert's romantic ideas of Europe, I thought, what would it hurt to steal a few hundred dollars? Do you believe he should be charged for these crimes? It was his signature on the checks, so I don't see how anyone else could be charged for something that clearly points to him. He should be spending time in jail, not me. That rat didn't come to my defense and let me rot in jail. 
All the while he was traveling about conducting business, my foot, and spending money on those precious dogs. Thank you for your time, Mrs. Lloyd. I mean, Miss Sickle. Oh, I am not done yet. I can tell you a lot more. On December 24, 1908, all proceedings against F. Albert Lloyd in Rochester were dismissed. Judge Snow contended that evidence introduced by the state was insufficient and that a man could not be convicted on the sole evidence of an accomplice without corroborative evidence, the accomplice and chief witness being Amy Sickle Lloyd. The state was unable to secure the necessary witnesses from the East, despite the testimony of a Chicago banker and a telegrapher. The Rochester newspaper concluded that the lesson of the case was that criminals who forge checks from out-of-state banks are generally safe from the law. Albert reportedly stated that he was going to, quote, shake the dust of Rochester from his clothes as this city did not look good on him, unquote. F. Albert Lloyd then drops from the historical record. Though no local reports could be found, on February 2, 1909, Washington, D.C. newspapers reported that Amy made an application for discharge from prison, and it was likely granted. Authorities in Washington had expressed interest in having her released to them so she could stand trial for similar crimes in their city. However, it doesn't appear that these threats to arrest her were ever carried out. The last known report of Amy, however, was one from Halifax, Canada, on April 5, 1910. The Halifax chief of police warned merchants to be, quote, on the lookout for a good-looking young lady of many names, known as the Minnesota Forger Queen. There was a $50 reward attached to the recovery of a collection of materials which she stole from the Montreal branch of the Lloyd Publishing Company. The chief went on to encourage shopkeepers to, quote, refuse to hear the voice of the charmer, unquote, and telephone him if she appears. Remember, ladies, when you are Natalie dressed in black and white, you stand out and attract attention. If you want to blend into the background, wear brown. Sometimes you want to be noticed, and other times you don't. And now I'd like to welcome in Anita Taylor-Doring, Senior Archivist and the Archives Department Manager at the La Crosse Public Library, who did some of the initial research for this story. The first hint I had at this story was a small notice in the La Crosse newspaper of 1907, when Amy Sickle Lloyd, our female forger, was being held in the Rochester, Minnesota jail. It wasn't really the first part of the story where Amy's court hearing was postponed that got my attention, or her alleged crimes or presumed husband, but the last part of the article that claimed Amy's husband's dog was valued at $1,000 and was lost for two days on the Northwestern Railroad line. Using inflation calculators, in today's dollars, that dog was worth over $32,000. I was never able to determine Albert's line of business if he had one. Was he using the dogs for racing or breeding purposes? How did he meet Amy? What happened to him after he left Rochester? Did he reconnect with Amy after her incarceration ended? And the biggest question of all, what kind of dogs did he own? Albert is indeed a mystery. Amy's crimes and the consequences of her actions were well documented in the newspapers in La Crosse, Winona, Rochester, and even Washington, D.C. One of the last articles I found was from the Washington Times, and within it were statements not reported elsewhere. The article states that Albert did come to Rochester while Amy was incarcerated, but before she pled guilty to the least of the indictments. It was reported that he sold his dogs and that with the remaining money visited the merchants who accused Amy of forgery. He hoped to repay them, provided the checks were returned to him. 
If this article is to be believed, it was likely he who advised Amy to plead guilty to the smallest of the charges. Only the Washington, D.C. papers speak of Amy's probable release from jail in February 1909, the D.C. police officials having been notified by letter from the Minnesota prison warden that Amy had applied for parole and that the State Board of Control was likely to comply with her request. Records show that Amy was transferred in June 1908 from the St. Cloud Reformatory to the state prison at Stillwater as there were no facilities for female prisoners at St. Cloud, a well-known fact even at the time of her court sentencing. By 1920, Minnesota had built a facility for female prisoners in Mankato. Wisconsin had a similar trajectory for facilities for female prisoners. Following statehood in 1848, women were sentenced to the state prison in Waupon for serious offenses. In 1921, the first inmates to the Wisconsin Industrial Home for Women at Techita were admitted. The home acted as a reformatory for women between the ages of 18 to 30 who committed first-time misdemeanors. In 1933, a separate state prison for women was constructed on the same grounds. In 1976, the Home for Women and its associated prison were renamed the Techita Correctional Institution. How were female prisoners dealt with in La Crosse who were not sentenced to a state institution? Most women received hearings in municipal court, and their crimes were usually related to being drunk and disorderly, prostitution-based, or traffic-related. Women at this point in history were generally not considered to be violent by nature, nor a threat to their communities. Criminals would usually be locked up less than a year, often 30 to 60 days, and have a financial penalty to pay as well or be forced to serve a longer jail sentence. In the case of very serious crimes, the criminal was sent to a state facility of some kind, the state penitentiary, the state hospital for the insane, a reformatory or industrial school. The presiding judge had many options, yet all held financial consequences to the city or county for their decisions. Neither the city nor county jail had separate facilities for female prisoners until 1890, when La Crosse's third county jail, located at 1003 Zeisler Street, the current site of the Belmar Apartments, was constructed. This building served as the La Crosse County Jail from its completion in 1890 to 1965. During Prohibition, it seems that more women faced charges in the local court system. It is unknown the total dollar amount of fraud that Amy was responsible for in the Washington area. The authorities there may have decided it wasn't worth it financially to pursue her. She would have had to have been extradited from Minnesota to Washington, D.C., and accompanied by law enforcement, which would have been an expensive trip. She had already spent a year incarcerated in state institutions in Minnesota and several months before that in the county jail. Perhaps they felt that punishment would have to suffice. What happened to Amy after her release from prison? Was she, in fact, the forger mentioned in the Halifax newspapers? We cannot say for sure, but her relationship with Albert Lloyd certainly sent her reputation to the dogs. Thanks for listening.